Good morning. Good to be here with you, and thank you, Whitney, for singing so beautifully and leading us and preparing our hearts, I trust, to uh, come to God's Word. We're in the book of Romans. If you're new with us, uh, we typically preach through books of the Bible, and we work verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. It's our usual diet, if you would um, put it on uh, that way. And so we come to uh, a mammoth of a text this morning, and uh, it's not preacher's pet peeve text, or uh, hey, I just wanted to talk about these things. I think there's good news here, but um, we, we're going to be challenged, I think, this morning. And so I uh, trust that you have a copy of God's Word um, with you. If you don't, um, the words will be up on the screen as I begin reading. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born or had not done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A hallmark of Christianity is the conviction that the scripture of both the Old Testament and the New Testament in its entirety is God's word and without error. And as such, we as Christians believe that the Bible has supreme authority over our lives believe it has supreme authority over this church. Everything that we do, word, deed, is subservient to the word of God. And while for most of us, or I hope all of us, who would identify ourselves as Bible-believing Christians, it's easy, I think, to confess, yes, I believe in the authority and trustworthiness of the Scriptures. But where it comes into practice and where it's sometimes much more difficult is to believe its power and sufficiency for our lives. That what it says, it does. That as Paul said, in it, or the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I think where the temptation or the struggle happens, or where maybe the disconnect can come in, is it's made when... And we don't see it working the way we expect, right? We don't see God's power on display. We don't see lives changed maybe as quickly as we would like, or, or maybe we don't see change in our own heart as quickly as we'd like. And so it becomes evident that we don't really maybe 
trust the power and sufficiency of the word. This becomes evident when we look at how little time we may spend in God's word. We think the power somewhere else. Even this can be true in the church. We can begin to think it's the things we do, our, our ministries, or the things that we have, our resources, that make the church grow and has the ability to keep people. And you certainly can do that. You can grow a crowd through what you do and what you have. Some of you have heard me say this, but what you win them with is what you win them to. But when we want to be Bible-preaching Christians, when we want to be a church that is, that is preaching verse by verse through the Scriptures, even hard texts like these, we don't want to ignore them and just kind of sweep them to the side. We might believe that if we could improve this gospel, that we can improve this in a way that would be a little bit more palatable to people, we may deny its power in doing so. Hardest times to believe the power of God's word is when we don't see people responding to it the way we'd like. And yet, the scriptures remind us. Think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He, he says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleases God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god this message doesn't look very powerful what we do here on sunday morning doesn't look like we're doing much does it i mean there's about 300 of us in this room and we're going to listen to some guy open up an old book and explain some weird texts. The world's going to look at that and say that's folly. But God says, for those who are called, it's the power of God. So as we come to Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and following, I pray that we not only believe in the trustworthiness of the Scripture, but we also believe in its power. And in so doing, we can be confident, brothers and sisters. We can be confident that when we proclaim God's word, when we share God's word, whether it's from the pulpit or whether we're doing it over the dinner table with someone, that God's word will succeed in fulfilling its purposes. God's word will succeed in fulfilling his promises to his people because his word will accomplish his sovereign purpose. And in order to see this kind of relationship between God's word and his sovereign purpose, I want to answer three questions of our passage this morning. The first one is this, what's God's promise? What is God's promise? Number two, who are God's people? And number three, what is God's purpose? And by answering these questions, which I think Paul does this in our text, I hope to rekindle maybe a confidence and God's mighty word to accomplish what he's purposed it to do. So Paul begins here in verse 6 with a question concerning whether God's word has failed. You see it right there. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. He's, a, he's answering, I guess, a question would be a better way to put it there. And the question has been raised, has God's word 
failed because most of Israel has rejected the gospel. We looked at that a little bit last week. And this gospel, which means good news, was actually promised to Israel in the Old Testament. So Paul, what are we supposed to think about this when you're going from town to town, you're showing up at the synagogue on Saturday morning or Saturday evening, and you're preaching the good news, and they want to kill you after you preach it. What kind of good news is that? Or, if this is about the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ, it looks like God's plans failed. Because the reception hasn't been really good here, Paul. For us to see kind of the significance of this, it's helpful for us to be reminded of the promise. What is this? And, and that's what he means by the word of God. He's talking about the word of promise. He'll, he'll mention it again in verse 9, for this is what the promise said. So you, you kind of can see that together. Have God's promises, as he's told us in his word, failed? And I think it'll be helpful for us to remind ourselves of these promises and also remind us that we're part of a bigger story. The story didn't begin in America. The story didn't begin at Oak Park. The story is the old, old story. And it was promised all the way back in Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are known as the patriarchs. We're going to come across their names through this chapter. They were the patriarchs of Israel, and what was promised to them was that their offspring, their descendants, would be blessed by God, they'd be placed in a land of blessing, and they would in turn bring blessing to the world. So that's the promise. God's going to bless you and your children. He's going to do so by putting you in a land of blessing, and when you're there, you're going to bless the whole world. That's Genesis chapter 17. The promise is then reiterated to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the promise came to him in this way, that he would have a throne established forever, and that he would have offspring. He would have a descendant who would sit upon this throne forever, and he would establish an eternal kingdom where the blessings of God would be experienced. And so this is kind of moving the promises forward. Israel, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to put you in a land of blessing, and you're going to bless the whole world. Well, how are you going to do that? I'm going to give you a king over you. He's going to be the son of David. And through this king, blessing is going to come to the world. And so this promise is then held out in hope. If you come to the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the last 12 books of the Bible, or at least the Old Testament, this promise is held out that God is going to keep his promises. It's held out in hope because Israel has been kicked out of the land. They have not obeyed God, and God has evicted them and put them in a land that is not their own amongst the people who do not speak their language. But hope is extended to them that God is going to remember his promises. And particularly in Isaiah 52, just listen to these. This is what's going to happen. God's people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, that day of salvation, they shall know that it is I who speak. He says, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That word good news is gospel. 
When my day of salvation comes and good news is proclaimed from the mountaintops, they're all going to rejoice. That's what the picture here. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We just sang that, didn't we? It's fulfillment right there, I would say. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has shown his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In other words, God says, I'm going to bless you, Israel. I'm going to put you back in your land, and all the earth will be blessed. That's the promise. They've been holding out for the promise. And then Paul would show up in a synagogue, and he would read texts like these, and he would say, this was fulfilled in a crucified Christ. He'd say, no, it didn't. And there would be the conflict. He would say, I am the one who is bringing good news of great joy. I am, my feet are beautiful, he might have said. I don't know. Probably looking at really dirty feet with sandals, and it probably wouldn't look so pretty. The expectation of Israel was that the Lord himself would return to rescue them, restoring them to their land, blessing them, and bringing blessing to all the world. And Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. You can look right there. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be the heir of the world. Paul is saying these things are happening now. So when we come back to Romans 9, 6, this is what he's talking about when he says the word of God has not failed. The word of promise has not failed. And Paul is saying, even though Israel has rejected the Lord, he has come. And the good news of redemption is still effective. It's still powerful. Well, why, Paul? How, how can that be the case? Well, because not all who are Israel are truly Israel. That's what he says. You see that in the next verse or the next sentence? This brings us to our next question. Who are God's people? It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Here in verses 6 and 7, he's going to make the same point kind of two different ways. Kind of already said the first one. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? There's like an Israel within Israel. It seems that he's saying. Then again in verse 7, he says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That's kind of weird. You're not really a child even though you're a child. So what does he mean? He tells us in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see what he's doing here? The true people of God, the true Israel of promise, the true children of Abraham are not physical descendants, but spiritual descendants. 
And he calls them here children of promise. Meaning it's the spiritual Israel, the spiritual children of Abraham who will inherit the promise of God. And so it may look like Israel is rejecting the gospel, but Israel is not rejecting the gospel. Do you get what he's saying? The children of promise are receiving it. This is why he, he quotes uh, Genesis 21, 12 in verse 7. Where he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. If you're familiar with the Old Testament of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham and his wife Sarah, they were, they were struggling to have children. They, they could not have children of their own. But you know, Abraham did have a son before Isaac. He had Ishmael through Hagar. And he says to God, is the promise going to come through Ishmael? He says, no, it's going to come through Isaac. You can't work around my plan, is basically what he's saying. And so you have here a physical descendant, Ishmael, who's not a child of promise. Isaac was the child of promise, he says. And the point is, is that the promise would come through the line of Isaac. And ultimately, the promise is traced through, if you, if you kind of a big picture of the Old Testament, you got Abraham, the promise is made to him. It comes to Isaac, not Ishmael. And we're going to see it, not only, it doesn't go to Esau, it goes to Jacob. And Jacob had his 12 sons, which were the 12 tribes of Israel, but the promise doesn't go through all of them, it goes to the tribe of Judah. Not just the whole tribe, but to one, the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So there's, there's a line, kind of a descendant line. And, it, and it's not determined by your physical birth, although they were physically children. And this one offspring leads up to one offspring. And Paul expounds this a little bit more in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. You can turn there, you can just listen. Now the promises, Galatians 3.16, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. All right, we got that. We're established, right? But listen to how he understands this. It does not say, and to offsprings, meaning many, but referring to one. You get that? That's kind of hard, because offspring is one of those words that can be plural or singular, right? It's like sheep. There's a sheep. How many? A sheep. You know, it's, it's, it's the same way. Some of you are tracking. Some of you are sleeping. <laughs> he goes on. It does not say into offsprings, meaning referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, and he tells us who the one is, who is Christ. So now that we understand who the offspring of promise is, who, who's the recipient of the promise, it's ultimately going to, it's the one seed, Jesus. And when we understand that the promises are mediated through the true son of David, well, now we can answer the question, well, who are the children of promise? Come back to Romans. And if you haven't read there, left there, that's good. Go back to chapter 4. Paul's already kind of unpacked this in Romans 4, talking about who are the children of Abraham. This is a big deal. Jesus got himself in a whole host of trouble when he would come and he would tell the Pharisees, you're not children of Abraham. And they'd say, 
Yes, we are. And he says, I could raise up children from Abraham from these rocks. That's, that's always the debate. Who are the children of Abraham? And, and Paul answers this in Romans 4, beginning in verse 9. And he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? That's the blessing of the promises, the, the gospel. Is it only for the circumcised? That is, is it only for the Jews or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Tracking here? It wasn't based on works, it was based on faith. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now you might be saying, whoa, that's really confusing. Here's the purpose of all that. You see that? The purpose was. You see that word? The purpose was, verse 11, to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That is, the purpose of why God did things in the order he did is so that he might be the father of all those who believe without becoming a Jew. That's what he's saying. And he concludes in verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the, of the faith of their father, of our father Abraham, before he was circumcised. How do you become a child of Abraham? You have faith like Abraham. And you have faith in Abraham's offspring, who is Christ. So let's, let's bring this back down. Who are the people of God. What is Paul trying to say in chapter 9? How does one become a true child of Abraham, a member of the true Israel, a child of promise? Through faith in Jesus as the Christ. So are you following the implication here? You and I, through faith, are members of the true Israel, and, the, and all the promises of the Old Testament are now ours. That's what he's saying. And so, the Jews who were rejecting the gospel would say, have God's promises failed? Only people believing are a handful of Jews and mostly Gentiles. And he goes through this whole big argument and says, well, it's never been the physical descendants who determined who were the children of Abraham. It's always those who have faith. And these are the true Abraham, true children of Abraham. And so back to Paul's question, whether God's promises have failed to Israel, the answer is no, because the true Israel of promise is believing. And this includes ethnic Jews like Paul. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Look at what he says. Same question, just bringing it up a different way. Romans 11, verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's Israel. What does he say? By no means. And what's his proof? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Jew, and I believe. I'm a child of promise. Well, it's not just Paul, it was all the apostles. And if you think about the story of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the church in Jerusalem, they're all Jews. They're all Jews. And what he's saying here is they showed themselves to be true Jews. Because they believed. They were true children of promise. But the story doesn't end in Jerusalem. It keeps going out to 
Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And everyone who believes is actually a true Jew. So whether you're circumcised or not, whether you've, you've become ethnically a Jew, but according to custom, it doesn't matter anymore. Because the children of promise are determined by who, whom they're related to. And that is, are you related to Jesus by faith? This is a good reminder for us, brothers and sisters, that salvation is not based on your birth or your ethnicity. Just because you're born to Christian parents, kids, doesn't mean you're automatically in. You must be born again. But the inverse is true. Just because you're born to non-Christian parents doesn't mean you're automatically excluded. Because the same gospel is preached to both. This really tears down a lot of the American pride. As if, as if America is receiving the blessings of Israel. We sometimes interpret it that way. If we just get it right, we'll, we'll, we'll have the hand of God. No, the promises don't transfer from nation to nation. The pr- promises are from those who are in Christ. That's where the promises come. And who's the new nation? It's the church, not America. Or any other nation on the face of the planet. And so we go into the nations declaring this good news that they may believe. View the church and what you're a part of is the nation of heaven. And the church is just a little embassy here. It's an embassy. And we go out and yes, we do business and we're, we're living here, but we're strangers and aliens, brothers and sisters. We're living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that will never crumble. We're living for the kingdom of the son of David who will sit upon his throne forever. That's the kingdom that we're living on. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a child of promise. But we're still left with another question. Because if we're thinking about Paul's dilemma here, it's the fact that Israel, by and large, is not believing. And Paul's answer to them is, it's because you're not a child of promise. You get that? The reason they don't believe is because something else isn't true. The reason people reject the gospel, ultimately die apart from faith in Christ, if we're following Paul's argument here, it's because they're not children of promise. That's what he's saying. So it's not our belief. Let me put it this way. What determines if a one is a child of promise? It's not our belief. It doesn't determine that. It shows it. You get that? Those who believe show that they are truly children of promise. And Paul says the children of promise are determined according to God's purpose. And that's our last question here. What is God's purpose then? And in verse 11, Paul answers this question. So back in Romans 9, verse 11, he answers the question, and and we see that God's purpose is his purpose of election. You see that there? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So if we were to summarize chapter or verses 6 through 13, we would see that God's purpose of election 
is the answer to the initial question of whether God's word has failed. No, it hasn't. And there's really a play on words here, if you can follow. Has the word of God failed? Some of your translations might say, has it fallen? No. But God's elective purpose continues. God's elective purpose stands. You, get the, you see the play on words? You think it's fallen, but no, it's actually doing what he set it out to do. God's purpose, sovereign purposes, are being established. And he gives two examples to illustrate that the promises have always been according to God's elective purposes. We've already kind of talked about Isaac, but it would be good to to look at it again. Look in verse 7 again. He says, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. And again in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. This is the word of promise according to God's purpose of election, if you're summarizing it all. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay? God chose Isaac. That's what he's saying. He did not choose Ishmael. That was the promise. That was the word of promise by which things were going to be accomplished. Now, someone might object and say, yeah, 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 Paul. But Ishmael was born out of sexual immorality. He had a slave woman, Hagar, and of course the promise isn't going to them. Okay, that's fine. Well, let's look at Isaac's children. Example number two. Isaac's children are Jacob and Esau. So we see in verse 10 that Rebekah conceived children, twins, as a matter of fact, by one man, Isaac. And so here you have the same mother, the same father, and not merely brothers, but twins. And in this story, Paul says, we see God's purpose of election. To help us see it, I'm going to work backwards here, okay? I'm going to start in verse 13 and work us back up to the statement. Because the, kind of the kicker comes in verse 13, right? We see in verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Brothers and sisters, there's really no way of getting around these jarring, this jarring language. There's, there's no way to kind of squeeze it out. Well, and some people try to do this and say, well, God's love is so great for Jacob that comparably it looks like hate to Esau. Okay, at the end of the day, Jacob is a child of promise and Esau is going to hell. There, there's, there's no way to smooth it out. And he quotes this from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. We're not going to turn there, but if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. Write that one down, or you might even have it in the reference column of your Bible. But in Malachi chapter 1, Israel is complaining to God, saying, you don't love us. You don't really love us. And God affirms his love for Israel, reminding them that he has set his covenant love upon Jacob, that is Israel, his descendants, and not upon Esau, that is the Edomites. He reminds him, he says, Jacob I loved, right? And Esau I hated. I set my covenant love upon Jacob's descendants, not Esau's. I chose you, I didn't choose the Edomites. And so if you look at it even at a big scale of, of the election of the nation of Israel, God chose Israel, not Egypt. You see that? 
I mean, the story, that, that purpose of election is all over the Bible. And some people find comfort, well, it's in groups. Well, Paul's just said the groups are made up of individuals, and not all Israel is Israel. So you can't hide in the pack. This is the same idea we saw back in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. God says, Jacob I love. That's his covenant love. That's the promise made to Abraham. I've set my love upon you to your offspring. So went through Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob, not Esau. It's covenant love. Well, if you were with us, we saw where Paul says in Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. I argue that that foreknew is God's covenant love. He's just saying it a different way. Jacob I foreknew, and Esau I did not. That's what he's doing. He set his covenant love upon him. And as for Esau, if you read that passage in Malachi, he says, I oppose him and that whole nation. And when they try to build, I will destroy it. There's no smoothing it out. He opposes Esau. And those who are not, he has not set his covenant love upon. So if you're, again, familiar with the story, Jacob is the younger brother, younger twin. There's even like a war inside the womb, right? If you're familiar, it's like Jacob's hanging on the, on the heel of Esau coming on out. There's a war involved, which is a picture of the war of the seed of the serpent versus the seed of God. The true children of God versus the children of the evil one. And they were warring inside the womb. And it sometimes looks like the seed of the serpent's winning. He was the firstborn. He was the hunter. He was the manly man. He was the guy who, who was, uh, got all the hair on his chest. and he was, he was the man's man. But what did the promise say? The older will serve the younger. It may look like Satan won by crushing the serpent on the cross, but Christ will be the child who crushes the serpent on the last day. What's all this based on? Well, God looked forward in the corridors of time and he saw that the Esau would do bad and Jacob would do good. Well, if you know the story, Jacob doesn't really do good either. He's a scoundrel. He cheats. He lies. He steals. What's it based on? Look again in verse 11. Turn there again. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. So you can't say, oh, he just looked down the time he saw which decision they would make. That's, that's not what he did. But look what it's based on. It's not based on their birth. It's not based on their conduct. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Because of him who calls. Again, think 8, 829. Turn back over. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. You jump down to 30. He continues to change. And those whom he predestined, he called. You see the unbreakable chain? What determines if someone believes God calls them? That's what he's saying. And there's a whole purpose of election, foreknowing, and predestination that's involved here. 
And he's just using one example, which would have been the preeminent example for these Israelites. This is how it's always been. And they like to set that against the, the pagan nations. God chose us, he didn't choose you. They just thought they could get in on the group ticket, group discount. And he's saying, no, actually, God dealt with it. Yes, groups, but these are individuals. Esau was rejected. So it's based on him who calls, Paul said, and he only calls those whom he's elected. So let's back out of here and answer some maybe practical questions. Does the doctrine of election then mean we're robots? We're, our actions have no real consequence because everything's predetermined. In the words of Paul, by no means, by no means. We are held accountable for our choices. Book of Romans, this is what, I mean, book of Hebrews, this is what the writer of Hebrews says about Esau. Esau, who rejected his birthright. Let no one be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Esau didn't want anything to do with the Lord. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. There will be no one in hell who wanted to be with Jesus. Well, it doesn't work that way. There's not going to be, oh, you thought you were a Christian, but, well, surprise. That's not how that works. God's sovereign purposes are not disconnected from human will and responsibility. And you might say, you're, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. No. This is just our ways are not his ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. And the best way I can explain it is that God's sovereign purposes are compatible or in sync with human choices. And so you and I, every person on this planet, we do what we want to do. And what we want to do accords with God's will. And so John 3.16 is not at odds with Romans 9. We say to everyone, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to see this. These, the, both these things are even in Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 23. And it's, I think this is a great, maybe forgotten parallel to this text. That Paul's just unpacking the teachings of Jesus. But if you go to Ro, uh, Matthew chapter 23, just look at two verses here. Verses 37 and 39 through 39. This is Jesus, the sovereign one who elects. Okay? Keep that in mind. He wrote Romans 9 through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that's Israel. Look at their guilt. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. You rejected God's word at every turn. Look at this. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see that? God's arms are extended. Whoever will come, and the reason they don't come is because they're not willing. 
goes on. See, your house is left to you desolate. Here's judgment. And for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you rejected me, I reject you. That's what he's saying. And if we come back to Romans, what is Paul saying? I'm telling you a mystery. There is a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. So follow this logic here. God judged a nation filled of people who still do not believe because he's hardened them. Yet they're the same people he extended and he said, come to me. God's sovereign purposes and human choices work together. They don't compete. What we choose to do, and whoever rejects Jesus will not inherit the promises, and whoever receives him will. So I'm bringing this all together and kind of laying the plane for today. I know I probably opened up a can of worms. We still have more to go in the coming weeks. But bringing this all together may be a little more practical for us. We need to remember that Romans 9 through 11 is wrestling with the promise, problem of the power of God, the goodness of God when we're trying to reach people with the gospel. In this real sense, we could say this has evangelism implications. And what Paul is explaining here actually fuels his evangelism. It gives them confidence to preach the gospel to everyone. So we should have that same confidence and we should preach the gospel to everyone. See, the doctrine of election, if you've been following through the book of Romans, is the actually only hope that people will believe because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't want him. So I want you to listen to these words, what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this is really brief here. Paul's telling Timothy not to quit the ministry. Be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of, of him nor me, his fellow prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because you're, you're, you're enduring a lot of hardship for preaching it. And then he says this, therefore, 2 Timothy 2.10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul knows there are children of promise out there. Doesn't know who they are. We don't know who they are. So you never say, because someone rejected you that time, well, that's because you're not elect. You don't know. You don't know that. You might just be the waterer. You might be just the planter of the seed, and God's going to later give the growth. You don't know. But we endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation, that they too may hear the word, repent of their sins, and believe. We plead with all men to be reconciled to God that way. In Acts chapter 18, Paul's battling. He's, he's been run out of town by the very Jews he's trying to reach. And in Acts 18... The Lord comes to him and says this, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I mean, go keep preaching the gospel. For I am with you and no one will attack you or 
to harm you. Here's what he bases all this on. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul's reminded of God's sovereign purposes. When you go and preach, no matter what's going on, and obviously it doesn't mean that no, nothing ever happens to Paul. He's always struggling, but he's saying, Your purpose, my purpose with you is not done. I have people yet to believe here. And he's not just talking about, I'm hopeful that there's some people. No, these are my chosen ones. So keep preaching. Paul did that same thing. And so Oak Park... Here's why I want to encourage us this morning. I know there's a lot there and wrestling and maybe a lot of questions. Here's what I want you to take away. We must be bold in our preaching and courageous in our sharing here in Jeffersonville in southern Indiana because there are many in this city who are his people. It's not based on what you see them doing good or bad. It's not based on their ethnicity and where they were born. You go to all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we preach the gospel. And may we, if we are hated, may we, if we are persecuted, may we, if we are mocked, may we, even if we are rejected, endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's what we do. We preach the gospel, we plant, we water, we let God give the growth. And he does it according to his purposes, and that's not our business. And so we do what he tells us to do. We're like a chef, or not the chef, excuse me, we're like the waiter. He's prepared the meal, we just come out and we better deliver it without messing it up. That's what we do. It doesn't matter if I say, I don't think they're going to like that. I've watched them. No, it does, it's not up to you. Or me. We preach the word, and we know it's not as if the word of God has failed. No, it's done exactly what God has intended. Let's pray. Lord, you are the, the God who reigns. And Lord, you have orchestrated all things according to your purpose, and even in the most sensitive matters for us, in matters of salvation. And Lord, I know that there are probably people who are struggling with these words, um, got questions that they want answered, and, and Lord, we, we know your word's going to give us some of those answers, but not all of them. But Lord, may we, I pray that you would impress upon all of us your goodness, as we'll see next week, that you are just, that you do what is good and what is right, you are not evil. And you are a tender Heavenly Father whom we can go to and we can pray and ask that you would give us the lost. And we know that we can come to you and you will, you will intercede on our behalf and you will cause us to pray according to your purposes. Lord, you are a God of means and we're thankful for that. And I pray that you would comfort us with these words, not discourage us. And I pray these things totally dependent upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.